0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you rose your servant Lazarus through the working of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray that in this miracle we would see your glory manifested amongst us. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I've never been a a huge fan of having a favorite verse or passage of scripture. I think it's worthy to study all and go as deeply as you can into them. But if I was pressed as to what my favorite might be, one of the ones that would certainly make the list is the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. Perhaps you're familiar with this passage, whether it's from traveling through Holy Week and hearing it read or some other reading that we've done in the church or in your personal devotion but during this passage what happens is ezekiel sees this valley of dry bones and the lord tells him to prophesy over it and the bones kind of if you close your eyes and that's what i like to do when i hear it read, especially you see the bones kind of like clink together and, and and in my mind they're always kind of weird and cgi but that's neither here nor there it's, it's an amazing thing to visualize as these bones come to life and get flesh back on them until there's this valley full of men standing before Ezekiel. If you're not reading carefully, you might miss the very beginning of this, where God asks Ezekiel if these bones, dry bones, specifically dry bones, can live. To which Ezekiel responds, O Lord, you know Ezekiel is being shown the hopeless and spiritual malaise that had overcome Israel by the time that he was a prophet. And we learn through scripture <clears throat> that this spiritual death, such that Israel faces, precede, faced in that passage, precedes the physical death which we experience. This, of course, is introduced to us when we meet Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and 3. Remember, If you remember correctly, Adam is told don't Eat the fruit of the tree of goodness, good of the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil, sorry. And if you do, you'll you'll die. And of course, the serpent tempts them and says, Oh no, you're not gonna die. And so they take the fruit and they don't die. And they're like, we must be like, well, look, the serpent's right. Until they realize the ramifications of what they've done. They've died spiritually, and their physical death will follow after that they've separated themselves from God. And as we read on in scripture, and certainly in the passage that I just mentioned in Ezekiel and the passage which we read this morning, we learn that God and God alone can bring life, bring new life as he does in Ezekiel and with Lazarus and as he's done with us as we reside in Christ. The vision Ezekiel shows God will work to make Israel alive again. And, again. and it foreshadows what's going to happen where he makes the world alive in Christ. It's easy to make both these stories, the story of the Valley of Dry Bones and the story which we read this morning about Lazarus, about us, right? We know that we have new life in Christ. Therefore, this must be about us. But there's something more going on here if we read carefully, if we remember back, late, back last week to the preface to this passage, which we looked at fairly in depth, it had much more to do with what God is doing for us and more to do with God being glorified through what he is doing in us. And if we read this carefully, we realize that both Ezekiel and this passage is about God's glory being manifested in Christ. So the first way that God's glory is manifested is in Martha's prayer. I remember when Reverend Johnson was here, I'm sure many of you remember him. We were preparing to do a funeral. I don't remember whose funeral it was, but he kind of came into my office and he was like, do you guys like go over to the person's house and bring a lot of food and hang out for a bunch, long time? I was like, no, that's not something that we do. And I explained to him our patterns of, in here, specific, our cultural patterns of mourning when somebody leaves. And you see, in his culture, that was a normal thing. Everybody would bring food and they'd go over and mourn with the person for, for a long time. I mean, like days, not just a, an hour or two like we might do, where we might have a potluck or something and, and mourn for an hour and then go home and move on with our lives. What we read this morning is a normal cultural ritual of grief. In fact, the Mishnah said you, you had to hire people. This is the, the rabbinic uh, law about different things. It said that you, you had to hire people to help you mourn. You, even if you were poor, you needed at least one person to cry out and mourn and another person to play the flute. And what we read this morning is clearly Martha had substantially more people than that. And so what we're seeing is just the normal pattern of mourning, except that by the fourth day, it would start to wind down. Because on the fourth day, they believed something would happen. And that is that the spirit or soul would leave the body. And now you're, you're really, really dead. And so that's really significant, right? As we enter into this passage, because John is building up the drama and what God is going to be glorified in here. First and foremost, Lazarus was really dead. Not like Lazarus was definitely dead, but he was really, really dead. He was, he was more dead than he was the day before. And the second thing that happens and that pushes us towards Holy Week is that he goes to Bethany. And he knows that by going to the suburb of Jerusalem, he's putting his life in danger. And he's walking headfirst into this. And if you you read John as a whole, you would see that this is actually starting to be the turning point as, as the last week before his crucifixion. And so John is building this tension up. And then we come to Mary's prayer. Mary comes to Jesus and almost exhorts him. And this teaches us something about the nature of prayer, doesn't it? That God hears your prayers, even when you don't know what he can do for you. Jesus hears Martha's prayer there, and she doesn't know what he can do, but she knows that he's going to hear him. And so she cries out to him in mourning. And that kind of, this prayer reveals that Martha has a genuine faith, even if that faith doesn't, is a little defective or lacks understanding. The prayer glorifies God in showing that Jesus is that good mediator who hears your prayers and brings them before the throne of your father. Even in the imperfections, of your prayers. It shows that God is not up there clicking off, well did he did he did he or she pray in the correct way? Did he start with this and then go on to that and then and then say it like this? No, God is hearing Martha's prayer and not judging her for it. There's this absolutely wonderful video clip of this great Baptist Scottish preacher named Alistair Begg, if you've never heard him at least listen to him once because his his accent is delightful to listen to but he's talking about the thief on the cross and he and he's like imagine what it must be like to have been the thief on the cross and you get to heaven and the 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 angel archangel who's guarding heaven is like well how did you get here and he's like i don't know and the because like well well what do you believe about this and what do you believe about that and he's like i don't know i've never heard those words before in my life so they, and he goes on, and it's quite, quite clever. But finally, the, the, man, the thief on the cross says, well, well why, why are you here? And he says, well, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Just Google the man on the middle cross if you want to watch it. It's, it's way better. But the point that is being made is that at the end of the day, our theology does matter, but it's going to be imperfect. What we believe matters, and, and it, it creates how we act and believe. But, but Jesus believes, or Martha believes that Jesus can do all things, but doesn't know what he will do. And so she simply prays. Much like the man on the cross doesn't really know that, that Jesus is going to save him that day, but knows that he should turn to him. When we believe, the rest follows. When we earnestly pursue Christ, The rest is going to follow orthodox belief and all those other important things come after we believe in Christ. Now, the second way that God's glory is revealed is in Jesus's response to Martha. He responds, I am the resurrection and the life. In this simple few words, we learn some really important things, don't we? We learn that the Father has given to Jesus the life to bestow through resurrection. He will make people new. Jesus, through that resurrection, through that, people who believe in him, even in death, will continue to live. And finally, those people who live at the very end, who see Christ returning, won't even taste the death that you and I are most likely to taste in this life. And all of these things bring back to our mind that wonderful passage in Ezekiel 37 or Genesis 3 where we remember that God and God alone is the author and giver of life. But not only that, that God has the power over death. It reveals that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, very God of God, made man. The third way that God's glory is revealed is in Mary's worship. Mary's worship is interesting when we get to that point, isn't it? Because Mary comes to Jesus and she clearly worships him by falling down at his feet. But then her worship, she rebukes him. That's fascinating. There's this incredible tension between her worship and this rebuking, this prostrating herself and what seems to be a prayer. But sometimes the greatest act of worship, the greatest prayers that we can make come from confusion within ourselves. Think of the father in the gospel according to St. Mark, who comes to Jesus and wants him to make his child well. And Jesus asks him, do you believe? And the father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Or think of St. Paul as he wrestles with his sin within himself, and he wonders, why do I do the things that I, do not, that I know I ought not to do? In fact, that prayer we take for our confession of sin during the morning and the evening offices. We pray that same prayer. We know we shouldn't do these things, and yet we are drawn to them like a moth to fire. Or think of Horatio's Spotford's incredible hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It Is Well With My Soul is this very powerful hymn that is of calming stillness before God, but he wrote it as he sailed over the place where his children died a few weeks earlier. It'd be easy to think that this is some sort of covering up of his grief and pretending it's not there. But that's not what's going on. He knows his grief, and it's deep within himself, and yet he knows that God is good. It is a confession that I do not understand what God is doing, but I still believe he is good. My friends, God is glorified when we keep the faith, when we do not, when we praise him, when we worship him, not understanding completely what is going on. God is glorified even when the only prayer we can come up with is, God, I don't understand what is happening. Jesus was deeply moved. This verb that is used here is only used a few times throughout the New Testament, and the other times are almost always in this idea of becoming angry. And so a better translation perhaps is Jesus became angry in his spirit and very agitated. And as I thought about this, and why, why would this be that Jesus is angry and agitated? And it'd be easy to say, well, he's, he's angry at, at, at Mar- Mary at this point because her worship is confusing, but I don't think that's what's going on. He's probably angry about one of two things, or possibly both of them. He's at least angry that the crowd themselves have this sort of superficial mourning and don't understand or even believe what's going on. He could also be angry, and it's probably likely that he's, both of these is going on, is that he sees the profound and destructive power of death, and it breaks his heart. See, the people can't see past this death. They can't see what that can happen, and they don't believe. And then we get to that famous passage, and, and I'm sure you all, if, if we took a Bible quiz, this would be the one that every single one, every single one of you would get right, which is, what's the shortest passage in the Bible? Jesus wept. Thank you. <laughs> <clears throat> But what's really interesting here is it, it continues down this path of this sort of different grief than you're seeing in the crowd. Because John intentionally uses a different word for weeping, and a, a less common word for weeping, I believe. But it draws out that his grief is different than what's going on with the crowd, He could be upset by the lack of faith that he's seeing. It could be expounding or or, or drawing that out even further. But it's more likely that it's just different. Because I think what it reveals here, what Jesus is doing, is that it reveals his sympathy. It reveals his compassion. And it reveals that he is grieving with Martha and Mary. But it also tells us something. He has sympathy for you in your struggles, in your heartache. He has compassion for you in your struggles and in your pain. He grieves when you grieve. The crowd's response is then critical and casts doubt that Jesus is going to even do anything. And it, it, we come back to this idea that Jesus is upset with the crowd we should understand that this entire passage is not here to condemn those who struggle in good faith, but it is there, but to those who mock the nature of God in the midst of struggles. God is glorified when we worship him as Mary did, even when we don't completely understand. The fourth way God's glory is revealed is of course in the resurrection of Lazarus. Before we jump into this, there's almost this comedic moment where where one of the sisters says, or Martha says, well, by now he's going to smell. In other words, Jesus is probably, or Lazarus is probably stinky now, Jesus. But then Jesus responds, and I think this cements that we need to read this passage about being primarily about the glory of God. He responds to Martha, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? <clears throat> and, and we see that Lazarus in this, not only has it been four days, so his spirit has left the body in their understanding, but he's stinky. So Jesus, Lazarus is really, really dead the glory of God is about to shine through in this moment, but nobody understands quite how this is going to happen. And so he prays that God would work, not because he doesn't think God is going to work or not because he's trying to muster up faith on his own, but so that everybody around him and you and I can know and see that God is working. Lazarus' death and resurrection is in fact foreshadowed oh so sorry so Jesus commands Lazarus to come out and then he tells them to care for him to take his wrappings off so that he's free and this is the most interesting thing we know that Lazarus resurrection was to the glory of God but Jesus' primary concern is to worry about Lazarus I think we cannot I think it's an easy enough infer, to infer that God's glory is often most clearly revealed in how he cares for his people. God's glory is most clearly revealed in how he cares for his people because he stops and he cares for Lazarus here. In his tender shepherding of your soul for your good, he is glorified. Lazarus's death and resurrection is foreshadowed, believe it or not, I believe in Genesis 3, when we see that the serpent is told, one will crush your head. In other words, the bringer of death into the world will be destroyed. And Jesus is starting that here. It's foreshadowed in Ezekiel 37, which we talked about at the beginning, where the dry bones come to life and if you think Lazarus was really dead, the dry bones were even more dead. And elsewhere, Lazarus' death and resurrection reveals and foreshadows something in and of itself. Lazarus' death and resurrection foreshadows and shows the new spiritual reality for those who abide in Christ. Lazarus' death and resurrection does, in fact, foreshadow Christ's death and resurrection, whose death and resurrection brings in that new spiritual life that you and I can enjoy. Lazarus' death and resurrection foreshadows foreshadows the death and foreshadows the final death resurrection. The final resurrection when those who are in Christ are resurrected from the dead in body and restored to God. When we will enjoy the kingdom of God forever and when we will see his glory in the fullness in a way that we might never be able to imagine. The meta-narrative of scripture moves from death in Genesis chapter 3 and finally ends in the fullness of life in Revelation 20 and 21. This morning is a punctuation here that reveals what God is doing in the bigger picture. And he reveals that he is doing it that his, for his glory and that his glory is for the good of the world. In the name of the Father and the Son, And the Holy Ghost. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ who said, It is more blessed to give.